Good day, my friends. This is Under Review, and I'm Craig Shapiro. We've got a great show for you today. Former world number two Tommy Haas. He was on the tour for 20 years. He played everyone across two generations. He beat Agassi at Wimbledon, Roddick in Rome, and he beat Roger on grass at the age of 38. He's now the tournament director of the BNP Paribas Open at Indian Wells. And he's also coached to world number 19, Luca Pui. Ah, he also has a hell of an Instagram account. We're going to find out where and how Tommy got his unbelievable backhand, hear his thoughts on coaching, and learn what it's like to be across the net from Rafa Nadal. We met up with Tommy 44 flights above Los Angeles at Jim Courier's Century City office. Tommy Haas in the house. How's it going? I'm good, man. Um, Thanks for having me. You know, I have to tell you, we, I, I, I refer to you as the endless summer <laughs> because every single time I pop onto your Instagram, you are somewhere like riding a bicycle through Rome or, you know, singing in your car. I like doing that, it seems, yeah. Some of, some of my fans, maybe not so much, but uh, it's something I, I enjoy. The living life to its fullest is obviously very important. You know, we're busy enough as it is, so... Got to enjoy sometimes. So I have a distinct memory, and uh, you couldn't ever remember this, but you and me and Nick Boletari and I think Mark Philippoussis <laughs> and I think my friend Martin Mulligan Jr. Yeah. went to see the Big Lebowski together in Munich or Stuttgart or Hanover, one of those three cities. A long time ago. <laughs> yeah, a long, long time. time ago. Yeah. Um, but you began with Nick. Yeah, I mean, look, my, my dad taught me how to play tennis, you know, obviously. Um, he was a tennis coach, so um, that's, that's how I got into the game. Trying to be with my dad as a, as a, young, uh, as a young boy, the, the, I mean, that meant for me to be uh, around the tennis clubs. But I did go to uh, Ball Terry's full-time right before the age of 14. So I was 13 and a half uh, years old, full-time. And uh, Nick sort of took over that role as a, as a mentor, as a second father, as my, as my coach. And... Uh, yeah, we still have a good relationship to this day. He turned you pro. You mean that's who you were with when you started? Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. I mean, it was obviously probably a very, very tough decision on, on my family at the time. Um, you know, lucky for me, tennis was always sort of uh, my, my happy place. You know, you, you give me a racket and a ball and a tennis court, something clicks in me and I just become very happy. I don't think about anything else but to, to try to play good tennis and, and be competitive and, and enjoy myself out there. So once I got to Ball Terry's, my dad, you know, had to make a decision and say, look, Nick, you are now in charge of, uh, of trying to help my son live his dream. To keep things moving and hit a wide variety of issues and stories, we've been implementing a five-segment format that we call the best of five. For our first set, we want to know what's been happening with you in your life and what's been going on this year. This is uh, what we call our off-the-court report. I think you started the year in Australia with Pui. Right. I went down to Australia for a few other things as well as tournament director in Indian Wells. You know, we always like to see what other tournaments are up to, what are they doing. There's always meetings, you know, with, uh, you know, some things that could come up in the future, um, new rules, etc. And uh, but it was also a reason for me to be down there to uh, to maybe get to know Luca Pui a little bit. And uh, we did a little bit of a practice week there as he reached out to me uh, end of last year, asking me if I can uh, join his team as sort of like a consultant, uh, help out his team. And, uh, and go after his, his goals, his dreams, uh, a little bit more in, uh, in detail. And uh, so we did a little practice week there. 
Um, usually the French players seem to be with the French coaches and the Federation and stuff. And I think that there's something a little bit unusual about that relationship. Like the Europeans can stick together in some ways? No, I mean, yeah, you're right. Uh, most of the French usually hang out with the French team or they have the French Federation that helps them out a lot. Um, but, you know, he's actually, uh, I believe, half, uh, half Finnish. His mom's from Finland, so that makes it a little bit different. But he's a great kid. Uh, you know, enjoys life. He's got a good outlook on life. He's a he's a very um, open-minded, nice nice kid, tr playing great tennis. Um, you know, and I think uh, what he's achieved already now in the past, especially last year with uh, being a Davis Cup champion, which in France that's a very very big deal. You know, you become a Davis Cup champion. That's like uh, looked up on as almost like you winning a Grand Slam in some ways. So, you know, having that success, winning that final dead rubber for him was a was a big relief, a big moment. He's also won a ATP 500 tournament. He reached top 10 first time in February. And, uh, you know, once you reach all those goals uh, at age 24 and you're not really on top of what's next, um, it can get a little bit uh, tricky at times. So I'm happy to be sort of a part of the team. And uh, we've had uh, our ups and downs and a lot of things to discuss, but uh, he's on the right track. How can you help him improve? Well, I think um, since I'm German, I think there's always, you always find something where you can get better at or it can get more... Um, you know, more specific in, in, if it's even in technique, if it's you know, your mental aspect. I mean, there's so many things that need to be in order. I mean, you look at the top players of the world that are actually on top of the game all of the time. You know, I've been on top, you know, I've fell back down with injuries. I try to come back up top. But, you know, there was always something, a few percentage here and there missing and ultimately winning the, the biggest tournaments or, you know, why you play the sport of tennis when you're young, trying to win a Grand Slam. So for me, looking at him now, I think he really does have the potential to really get deep and get far in these majors as well. And that's got to be the ultimate goal. But, you know, you got to start with technique. You got to start with the right outlook. You got to have the right mentality and you got to live and breathe and eat tennis. And uh, that's something we have to work on. Now, you leave Australia. I think you probably came back here for... Your tournament. I did, yes. For those of you who don't know, Tommy is the tournament director for Indian Wells, which for all intents and purposes is, you know, the fifth Grand Slam. It is awesome. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, your involvement and, and what, what you're doing? Yeah, sure. No, I mean, obviously it's a privilege for me to be part of that amazing team in Indian Wells. As you mentioned, it is the fifth Slam. Um, it is one of the most respected tournaments on tour. The players love it, the fans love it, and our sponsors love it. So that's really my, my main objective is to make sure that all of these three components are, that they're very happy, that they get what they want out of it. And uh, that's why I continue to try to raise the bar. Um, I have a great relationship with, uh, with our owner, Larry Ellison. We've always talked tennis. I've been lucky enough to uh, stay at his residence at Porcupine Creek while I was still a player. So we've uh, gotten uh, to know each other quite well and, uh, and share a lot of the same interests. And, um, you know, having him in the, in the sport of tennis um, is such a treat. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very happy that the opportunity came about of uh, being a part of this event and, uh, yeah, just keep trying to, to make it better and better. We talk about Larry Ellison. He is the, you know, founder of Oracle and, you know, is really the heaviest guy in the game right now. I mean, he's doing stuff that you can only dream about. The tournament yeah. is incredible. No, it's incredible. He's got an amazing vision, not just for, for tennis, which obviously all of us in the tennis world are so appreciated of, but, you know, he's also big into sailing, what he's done to America's Cup. He's big into his real estate. You know, he just recently bought the island of Lanai a few years back, and he's doing just amazing things there. And all the things that he's doing besides that, giving back, is, uh, you know, something he doesn't really talk much about, but uh, it's also just truly amazing. And 
on top of that, he's, uh, he's got a great sense of humor and just enjoys life. And uh, I, I feel very lucky to have uh, such a great relationship with him. And there's like five Nobus. There's like five yeah. Nobus. Wherever Larry Ellison is, there's usually a Nobu just around the corner. And how much Nobu do you eat in that week and a half at the tournament? I mean, how much Nobu are you Not eating? enough anymore because I'm, I'm quite busy. But I try to sneak in every once in a while and, and see everybody. And, uh, and, you know, obviously cannot resist having a little bit of, uh, of sushi. Or even, you know, Wolfgang Puck has a great restaurant there now as well with Spargo. All the other concession stands uh, are very, very delicious with great pizza and cheeseburgers if you want to have a little bit of that. But it's all good quality. So it makes it very, um, it makes it makes it tough sometimes trying to figure out during the day what you want to eat. Our producer Scotty and I, we uh, actually ate Wolfgang Puck right on the window on the center court, court one, right? I think you guys stadium one. It. That's exactly stadium right. Stadium yeah. one. We we were in. We watched. Uh, we watched Club Fed. I think on the window there. Um, that's almost one of the best things you can do in tennis. It's one of the best views in tennis for sure. I mean, it's the second largest stadium in the U.S if not the world. Um, you know, we totally redid Stadium One last year, it was kind of complete facelift. All the suites are now just, you know, top class. Um, and like I said, everything that Larry Ellison decides to do is usually very classy, very top of the line, and uh, he's got good taste, and uh, people seem to enjoy it, which is the most important thing. So then you, you finish the tournament, and you've been, I mean, I think you've been in Hawaii, you've been in Italy, right? You, I mean, you... Yeah, been uh, endless summer. Time yeah, no, it's you know, it's like uh, I've I recently retired. Obviously, I knew that end of last year in August it was going to be some of my last matches on tour. Obviously, I would have loved to play the U.S. Open last year and make that my official last Grand Slam, but I didn't get the wild card there, which uh, I'll probably never, never find a, a way to to accept that defeat. But that's just the way it is. Um, but you know, so I'm trying to also uh, enjoy a few more things off the court that I wasn't able to do while I was either a professional tennis player or injured or a father. And um, you know, so obviously I had my big 40th birthday beginning of April. And uh, thanks to Mr. Ellison again, letting me use one of his properties to entertain my best friends uh, that all came and showed up, which was a lot of fun. Then another friend of ours uh, turned 40 as well. That party was in Ibiza for a week. So I've never been to Ibiza, so we went there. Um, then, yes, I went back to, uh, to Hawaii to play on the Champions Tour, the Invesco Series, which is a lot of fun playing with former legends and bigger legends than me, obviously, but, you know, playing the likes of Jim Currier, John McEnroe, Michael Chang. And, that, and that's a great show. Um, the, for the people that participate, you get to hit balls with the players at a, the morning clinic, which is kind of a neat thing. And then, and then you guys play pretty hard, I think. No, we do. I mean, you know, it's uh, especially when you're, you know, for me, obviously just getting off the tour, you know, over a year ago, um, you know, the competitiveness is still in there. I think the good thing is, is that we don't really play for anything. So it's not as serious as you as you would probably get if there was a little bit more prize money involved. But you still go out there. We all have uh, an ego still and we still probably want to try to show the people that we can still sort of play and um, try to stay fit at the same time. But it's, for me, it was obviously a very, very special moment. Um, you know, having gotten to play uh, John McEnroe in, in one of those sets, you know, in front of a crowd. You know, we've hit some balls before in the past. He's warmed me up for matches for certain events, especially during the Open. And, um, you know, so that was that was fun because I've only obviously seen him do his thing on the court, but sort of being on the other side at that time and trying to beat him was, uh, was, a, was a fun fun moment for me. Um, you were basically front and center at all the clay court, all the big clay court events. You were at the French, you were at, you were at Rome. I wasn't at Rome this year. I was, oh, supposed to, I was supposed to go to Rome in Madrid with uh, Luca Pui, but I had a few other um, obligations already during that time. But I did go 
and start with him again at the French Open. And then we went on to uh, the grass court season with Stuttgart, Halle and, and, and Wimbledon. And um, yeah, that was, you know, exciting. That was sort of like the time we got to know each other a little bit more. And, you know, obviously when he plays in Paris, uh, the French Open, the home tournament as the number one French player, a lot of emotions, a lot of pressure um, that he had to go through. But uh, overall, he did pretty well. Lost a tight third round match against uh, Kashanov, who is also a nice uh, upcoming young player whose game I really like. And also his personality is a really... Karen Kachanov. Yeah, exactly. He can yeah. play, man. He can play, yeah. This guy is definitely one to watch as well. He's, he's great for the game. He's sort of like a, a new Marat Safi, in, in my opinion. Um, you know, he's also fun off the court and enjoys life. But he, you know, when he is on and he played in a hell of a match against, you know, Rafa Nadal at the, at the US Open and just sure um, got, uh, got very close to maybe beating him as well. So then we actually saw you in Newport. The Courier crew hosted us out there, and yeah. I got to knife a couple backhands uh, past you and Leighton Hewitt. Um, That's right. You got, I, you got a killer backhand, by the way. I do like that one. <laughs> Coming from you, that that makes me blush. But uh, it's true. You know what? Um, again, pretty much one of the more fun things you can do in tennis is to you know go out there on that champions tour and and really like you know get to interact with some of these players and and stuff if you're a fan i think it's kind of a neat thing and to be at the hall of fame i mean that's as good as it gets yeah no it's true it's a great venue um todd martin has done an amazing job there as ceo for the last couple of years it's fun for the players it's great to play on grass and then if you get a kick out of it and other fans or people that participate in those clinics Makes it makes it special for us and uh, people that are just passionate about the sport of tennis. You know, when we all get together, we always seem to have a great time. The accessibility is what's interesting. You know, right. once you've retired, I think that there's a better. Uh... Yeah, it's very true. I mean, look, you know, when you're a professional tennis player nowadays, just getting ready for for your first round match anywhere, it's it's, it's a busy day. You know, it's like by the time you get to the courts, by the time you warm up, by the time you. You do your training by the time in the afternoon, you, so you try to recover, you go to the gym. I mean, it constantly is something going on. So it's tough for a player to say, look, I'm going to find you know, an hour and a half or two hours uh, during the day to do this, to do that, to do this, maybe sponsor meeting. So you have to find even for them the right time during the week to do that. But for us now, you know, we don't have to do 80% of that anymore. You know, for us, it's like, you know, we take a couple laps, you know, a couple of shoulder turns and we go out there and play, which is not the smartest thing to do. But, you know, we are kind of happy we don't have to go through the whole warm-up process anymore, the whole recovery thing. We do the different things now to recover. And uh, so this gives us a chance to um, obviously uh, mingle and, uh, and be more involved in, uh, in other things, especially for, for people that, uh, you know, want to see us uh, up close and personal. Moving into our second set, I want to get your thoughts about the four Grand Slam winners on the women's side. Yep. How do you feel about women's tennis at the back end of 2018? I think it's very exciting. I mean, obviously, they still have the, the Singapore uh, you know, finals going on at the end of the year, which is obviously a, a huge event for, for all the ladies that are participating in that to see who really deserves maybe the year-end number one ranking. Um, obviously, I was very, very excited and happy for Caroline Wojniacki to win her first Grand Slam in Australia. What a story that was. I actually remember watching her match when she was down, I think, double match point, 5-1 in the third. And she came back and turned that match around, if it, maybe in the third or fourth round. And, uh, you know, all, all of a sudden she seemed like she was playing with, uh, you know, house money and uh, going, going all the way and playing an amazing match against Simona Halep. Uh, you know, very, very deserved victory there. So I was very happy for her. At the same time, kind of felt for Simona Halep because she's been to a lot of Grand Slam finals now and she still hasn't gotten over the hump. So then looking at the French and having Halep win the French Open the way she did, I was very, very happy and excited for her. And I think over the last, you know, eight Grand Slam champions now on the women's side, there's always been a different winner, which makes it very exciting. And it just shows the depth that anybody can win 
at any certain time, um, just depending on who gets hot and who can maybe maintain that level. Um, then you go to Wimbledon. Um, I actually happened to play a couple of weeks prior with Angelique Kerber in, a, in an exhibition match. And, uh, you know, Angie is always top fit. She's always a great player. You can never count her out. She's such an amazing fighter. Do you have an interesting relationship with her uh, because you because you guys are both German? Do you, do you I mean, you know, I mean, look, I, I try to get along with, with anybody all the time as, as good as I can. You know, obviously we're also busy and most of the times we might be in, in the same area because of some tournaments and I'm there for different reasons. They're obviously there to perform well and do their thing, but... Uh, Obviously, we all, in some ways, get along well, and I've been around long enough where we've kind of built a, a good relationship. And, um, you know, and maybe because of the German part, and she knows what it's like, so sort of like being from Germany, and you're dealing with the press and the pressures, and, you know, obviously her having won her third Grand Slam title in Wimbledon, now she's, you know, she's the only Grand Slam she's missing, I believe, is, is the French Open, which is, you know, pretty incredible, and what a, what a career it already is, but, you know, she can obviously continue doing really well for the, few, for the years to come. So happy to see her play an amazing final against Serena. Anytime you beat Serena, I mean, you must be doing something right, right? So, um, you know, speaking of- Do you of think that, um, did you think that Kerber won that match or Serena lost it? I thought Serena played a terrible match um, yeah, I mean, at the Wimbledon final. Um, we all see, know that Serena can play better, that's for sure. But I think sometimes the opponent can have something to do with the fact of why maybe somebody else is playing bad. Because, you know, a lot of players can play pretty good tennis against the likes of Federer, Djokovic, or Nadal, but they have a way of making you maybe not always look that great, depending on what surface or day you're playing against them. So I felt like that Angie, left-handed player, she can use that slice serve into the body or out wide a lot to open the court. She moves extremely well, also on the grass court. She didn't miss much. So Serena had to play at her best, and she knew that. And, you know, sometimes when you don't win the few games to kind of stay tight or take the lead in the set, you know, you get a little bit more worried, you get a little bit more tight and uh, you start making a few more mistakes and then you stop maybe believing in the, in the abilities and the opponent, uh, in that case, Angie, played a, played a flawless match in my opinion. Um, but yes, obviously we also know when Serena does play at her absolute best, I mean, it's almost impossible to stop her. So I think, uh, you know, most of her uh, matches or the, the matches she plays, you know, people try to at least hope that she is not playing at her <laughs> extreme best. Yeah, I mean, it takes two to tango, right? You know, I think we probably saw that in the beginnings of the first set in at the U.S. Open, where uh, both Osaka and, and Serena were both playing really good tennis. Um, there were some points that were just, I mean, breathtaking. No, absolutely. And uh, speaking of, uh, you know, Naomi Osaka, I saw her play live matches a lot in Indian Wells this year. You know, she won our tournament there and um, that's actually, really where that really was her uh, yeah, sort of like breakout a breakthrough. To, yeah, no, to the world absolutely she's obviously working with the coach Sasha who's done a tremendous job with her who's been around been with Serena for a very long time so you have somebody there that is uh, very knowledgeable about the game and uh, you know puts his heart and soul into it so she's obviously got very very good support there with, with Sasha um, I actually watched a lot of matches, as I was mentioning, uh, from Naomi in Indian Wells. She played the first round against Maria Sharapova, and I'm good friends with Maria as well. So I was happy that Maria was back in Indian Wells. And uh, it was a tough first, first match, first round up, obviously. And, you know, it was very close. You know, both times at four on the first, first and second set, I think Maria got broken, even though she had game points, and Naomi won that match. But, you know, Larry and I watched that match together, and we were talking about, wow, how powerful is this Naomi Osaka? And... Where does she come from all of a sudden? And next thing you know, 
you know, nine days later, she's lifting up the trophy and uh, giving a very funny, uh, cute sort of, uh, you know, um, ceremony speech. I'm new. Oh, okay, never mind. Um, I would like to thank the um, tournament director, um, and then the the WTA and the staff and the physios. Oh, whoops, sorry. Um, I would like to thank Dasha. <laughs> I would like to thank Dasha. Um, this is probably going to be like the worst acceptance speech of all time. <laughs> no, I think at that time she was only 19. And uh, we were thinking like, wow, there's a new, a new player on the scene that's gonna make some noise. And she's tall, she's strong, and she hits the ball. Yeah, no, it's unbelievable. I mean, and we saw that in the final against Serena. I mean, Serena is obviously known for having probably the most powerful ground strokes, but they were going at it, you know, and uh, I mean, Naomi was hitting some really unbelievable, powerful shots. And, you know, I mean, all the respect goes out to her, how she handled the situation, playing her idol, Serena, in the final, um, the way you know, just so so solid. Every time there was maybe sort of like an opening for Serena, she came up with big first serves, you know, hitting great, great shots down the line, winners. I mean, it was was uh, was absolutely spectacular to see that. Um, since we're here, let's just let's just land on it. There was a lot going on that a lot of people that have chimed in on the on the subject matter don't really realize. But one of the great takeaways for us that I think got lost in the sauce of what happened was that Naomi was incredibly well coached. No, she was. And, you know, if you, you know, I haven't seen the match again, which sometimes is very important. You know, it's like when you watch a great movie, uh, you know, there's actually a lot of things you sort of missed out. Once you watch the second or third time, you're going to go, oh, I didn't even realize that part was that intense or that great. And that can happen with a lot of other great, you know, sort of sport moments, especially also in tennis. But what I noticed also at that time is, how positive and motivated Naomi stayed all the time, you know, with the whole crowd sort of at the end, you know, really taking on Serena and, and helping her. She just kind of kept pushing herself. Every time she hit a big serve, she kept firing herself up and, uh, and stayed really just within herself. And that's, for a 20-year-old who has never been in that position, is, is really, you know, something you have to just uh, applaud. And, and you have to applaud the coach. The entire team, absolutely. I think a lot of people sometimes don't realize that, that obviously we are out there by ourselves and uh, we, we have to sort of make the right decisions at the right time. But, you know, having an important uh, team around you that will try to help and look at every aspect that you need to be ready for is, is very, very important. And they've done uh, a tremendous job uh, for the entire US Open. Have you formulated uh, your opinion about what happened um, with Serena? I have not. Look, you know, I think you look at every sort of, you know, possibility angle in the whole situation, you know, that's that's for sure. I mean, um, you know, as Patrick Maratugolo said it best, you know, I think most of the coaches coach in the box. Uh, I think it, there's nothing wrong with it personally. Um, I'm sort of now on the other side as well where, you know, I'm sitting in the box and uh, trying to help out Luca Pui. And, you know, sometimes, you know, you try to watch what you say because, you know, it's maybe a little bit of coaching. But a lot of the times also it can just be motivational. It can just be like, you know, stay focused. You know, whatever it is that you're saying, you're just trying to get to the player to, to make him feel comfortable. So I believe that anyway, long term, you know, coaching in, out of the box should be allowed. I mean, We're that's good. just, yeah, I mean, it's to me, that's, you know, that's something that needs to be that needs to be taken care of. It, it just didn't seem to me that um, that was really what was happening. It seemed to me that Serena was panicking and losing and... No, I think, you know, in the beginning, I guess, sure. I mean, Naomi played great and Serena, 
I'm sure deep down it can admit to that. That's no problem. I think, you know, Serena has shown over the past that when she has been defeated that she's absolutely fine with it. If she didn't play her best and her, and her opponents are just better that day, she's, you know, obviously done such an amazing job all the time of making sure that that's, that that's being recognized. You know, Serena is, is, a, is a great champion and also a great loser when she doesn't win the big titles, in my opinion. I believe that she was more rattled up with the fact that she didn't want to agree or didn't want sort of the world of tennis people knowing that she gets coached because I think, I don't know if it has ever happened to her that she got a code violation for coaching. And so therefore she was just trying to talk to the umpire and say, look, I don't need to be coached. I'm Serena. I like the fact that I'm out here by myself trying to sort of, you know, find solutions of winning the game. Now, did she kind of go on with it for too long? In my opinion, she did. She should have just said, okay, whatever, let me regain my focus and just, you know, continue playing the tennis match. Um, and, you know, again, I think some umpires will call you out for coaching. He has done it in the past, you know, Mr. Ramos. So it's not like he's doing it for the first time. So he, he felt the need to do it. That's, that's how it is as well. But again, I think the moral of the whole thing is when do we decide what is coaching, what is not coaching, and where is the consistency in that? You got to be consistent. If you see other coaches doing it as well, then you just kind of have to say, look, coaching violation again. Um, or you just want the coaches to sit there with their hands crossed or something where they don't move. You know, maybe they can't even nod their head. I don't know what then, what do you call for coaching? If I lift my left arm up and I kind of make a, a toss motion saying maybe keep the toss up, is that coaching? Is it not coaching? So one way or the other, just allow it, in my opinion. Just let them do what they want. They have to be quiet anyway once the point starts and the players still have to do sort of, you know, figure out a way to win that point, win the game, win the set, win the match. Let's just briefly talk about the men. It was Fed, then it was Rafa, then it was the Joker, um, you know, in Wimbledon in the U.S. Open. Men's tennis right now, I think, is an unbelievable product. But it's interesting to think that we haven't seen some, some of these younger guys really win any of these big best of five set matches. Yeah, it just shows how good these guys are that you just named, right? I mean, they've been dominating it for so long now. You know, I get it. I've played all of these guys and, uh, you know, when it comes down to it in the big events, best of five, it's just something that, that they got that, that we don't at the moment. And they, and they are just so hungry and they're so passionate about winning these titles. And it's amazing to see Djokovic now tied to Pete Sampras. I mean, I was actually the guy that he beat in the fourth round, 7-6 in the fourth in the 2002 US Open to, to claiming his 14th slam. Uh, when he beat Andre Agassi in the final and, uh, and he never played a match again at age 31, right before his 32nd birthday. And you kind of go, all right, well, that's, you know, slam number 14. That's going to be a really, really, really long time until we see somebody pass that, right? Fast forward 16 years, two guys already passed him and one just tied him and he probably most likely will pass him as well. How is that possible? I mean, right, so I'm sitting here playing Pete and the Andres in that era and now playing all these other guys in that era, also seeing sort of like the next level of... Uh, of great potential players, you know, that are talented and are going to be the next uh, Grand Slam champions in the next few years coming up. But it's just like, you got to tip your head. You know, what Roger has done in this game of tennis is absolutely phenomenal. Winning Australian Open again this year to win his 20th Slam is, is truly off this planet, in my, in my opinion. I mean, what he has done, what he's achieved, how he plays is, uh, is, is just mind-blowing and he makes it look so easy. And, uh, you know, on and off the court, he's just such a great guy. Then you fast forward to Rafa Nadal. I mean, that guy is the king of clay. I mean, there will never ever be, and that I'm pretty sure of, ever be a player on clay like that again. It's almost impossible. Does he have like 11 Monte Carlos? Yeah, it was, I mean, every time he plays a clay court tournament, it's pretty much his. But the biggest one, which is the French Open, you know, to lift that trophy up, you know, year after year after year, 11 times the same tournament, truly remarkable, truly just 
out of this world. But it's like when Guga won three and Quer, you know. Yeah, like, but I mean, you can go back to Borg, you know, winning, uh, winning four, you know, or whatever, or six. I mean, I don't even know. He won six. Sorry, sorry, six French Opens. Crazy. And you thought that was not going to be, you know. Touched. Yes. Touched. And now he's got almost twice as many. And it's uh, unbelievable. So it truly is unbelievable. And, you know, seeing him try and win also the other big tournaments, you know, with his style of play, which is obviously so fun to watch. And when you see him going up against uh, Roger or Djokovic or Murray or Vavrinka, it's just, it's always fun. It's always nice to see that lefty guy out there. Tommy, what does it feel like to play Rafa? Do you feel like, like to me, I feel like you must feel like you're, you're suffocated. Yeah, you know, I actually played him three times, I believe, and uh, twice I played him in Cincinnati, which now is not one of Rafa's best tournaments. You know, I don't think he's ever gotten to the finals there. So I had chances, actually, in those matches. Both times I think I played him there, I've had set points in the first set, and I didn't win it, I lost in a tiebreak, and then, you know, second set sort of, you know, my mind kind of uh, slipped away a little bit, uh, unfortunately, which uh, was, a, was a weak link of mine. But I did play him one time, uh, third round at the Australian Open, I believe in 2009. And I was actually playing some really good tennis. And I remember playing him in the first set and I felt like I was playing at such a high level. I think I broke him early on, going up 2-0. I was serving well. But I remember this particular point when I was serving out wide and I think I must have close touched the line. I served and volleyed. And he's basically just kind of getting this racket on, hitting like a slice return down the line. And I, you know, get up to the ball and just hit a crisp back and volley cross court. And as I'm hitting it, I'm kind of going like, oh, that's going to be such a beautiful winner, just like moving away from him. And the next thing you know, I see him starting to run, ba, 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 you know, his quick feet. And he's a lefty, and I'm thinking, yeah, he could maybe get there. So I'm trying to cover down the line, and I have plenty of time to cover down the line. So I see him like, okay, he's almost getting there. He's actually going to make a play on it. And I cover down the line, and he hits a forehand down the line passing shot, you know, around the net post. And I'm looking at this ball and all I can see is just look at it because I can't even, I'm not even close of reaching it even though I'm covering down the line as you're supposed to. And I follow this ball and it, and it lands in. And I'm going, how was this possible? Like, you know, you kind of just go off the shoestring on a complete stretch like it was nothing, you know. And he kind of gives it like a little fist pump like he usually does and he breaks me back and we're on surf and I lost that match 6-4, 6-4, 6-2. I was completely physically, you know, after the second set already done. I mean, and these guys, you know, after two and a half, three hours, they're still going like, you know, it's no problem. I was not uh, physically blessed that way. You know, my body couldn't, couldn't withhold that um, and my surgeries can speak for that. But, you know, just truly remarkable. So these top guys, I mean, best of five playing them and I've played Roger a couple times as well in Slam. It's just like they make you feel like you have no time to breathe. They make you feel like the court is very, very big. All of a sudden, you have to cover areas that you didn't know existed. The real estate becomes so much bigger. And when the big points come on, these guys don't miss and they play the best. And you're just constantly wondering how it's possible. These guys don't miss. They don't miss. They don't miss. No. You don't really miss. I, I happen to miss quite a bit, unfortunately, at the right time when it counts. Uh, also made a few, obviously, here and there. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's remarkable to see them really play their best when it counts. And that's what makes it so fun to watch. Moving on to our third set. Um, first of all, Tommy Haas got to two in the world. And right at that moment, we, and do I have it right? Yeah, it's true. I was two in the world at the moment. I was actually going to be seated probably two and maybe three, depending on what Wimbledon was going to do. And then, let's just say this was 2002. Yeah. You were right in the pro perfect moment, the best moment of your career. I was, for sure, yeah. I had a great end of 2001, great 2002, you know, getting into the top 10, top five, being number two. And then what happened? 
Well, I've, I've started 2002, um, you know, reaching the semifinals in Australia, and I started feeling my shoulder already a little bit. I kind of kept going, something is going on. I, you know, right before the Australian Open started, I could barely serve certain times, and I just had this weird pain in there. And so we always kept an eye on it. I played the Australian Open, and the pain would sort of kind of come and go. And then all of a sudden, it wasn't there anymore. Then February, March came along, you know, there it was again. And I kept kind of looking and t t talking to my team saying, something's not right with my shoulder. So, you know, you start taking MRIs, you start going to different doctors and nobody could really tell or tell, you know, see anything wrong with it. So it's like, okay, I'll, I'll keep playing and just keep, keep an eye on it. Um, managed to get to the finals in Rome, getting a nice beating from Andre Agassi in the finals there, but uh, reached a career high of number two. So I was just playing very consistently well. I was usually every tournament I played, I usually got to the quarters, semis, or, you know, maybe I've even gotten the title. But uh, then in 2002, I actually felt in the summertime that my shoulder was getting so bad that I needed to take a little bit of rest. So after the French Open, uh, when I lost in the fourth round there, I couldn't hit any high forehands. I said, look, you know, to be ready for Wimbledon, and I was going to be seated pretty high, let's just take some time off and not play Halle Germany, which is a grass court tournament. And for me to say I'm not playing in Germany at that time was uh, already like saying, okay, something is not right with my shoulder, and I need to figure out what's going on because this is this is driving me insane. So I went back to Florida. My parents were in Florida and, uh, um, you know, my dad liked to, to ride motorbikes. So I've gotten him uh, maybe a year before that, uh, a, a fat boy, Harley Davidson. And, um, you know, I was in St. Petersburg at the time getting a cortisone shot into my shoulder. And uh, that, uh, that afternoon on my way back, um, you know, my ex-girlfriend called me at the time, hysterically crying, saying, your parents were just in a bad, bad motorcycle accident. They're laying across the street and they're not moving. And she drove by at that same time. What are, what are the chances on that? So my dad was in a coma for three weeks, so I decided not to play Wimbledon that year. You, do you know? Do you know? The, did he hit? Did he hit something in this? Well, the guy took the took the basically didn't see him. You know, taking a turn into a, into a restaurant. So my, you know, they were just kind of cruising along, not really fast. You know, going maybe 35, 40 miles an hour. But he had to hit the brakes hard and try to maneuver around it. But they, you know, hit hit the car basically. My mom got very lucky. You know, they didn't wear any helmets. So, um, you know, my mom broke her jaw, her leg, her shoulder. Uh, my dad, you know, his leg was uh, in, in really bad conditions. He was, uh, you know, had a head injury. So that's why he was in a coma for three weeks, but they were able to save his leg. So on and on and on, I just felt like I needed to stay there and uh, make sure that, uh, you know, they are going to yeah, be okay. Of course. Um, looking back though, I'm sure if my dad was awake, he would have said, you get your, you know, butt on that plane and you play because that's, that's your life. That's what you're supposed to do. But at that certain moment, you know, my, my sisters and other family members came to, to Florida to, to help us out and then support them. And uh, so I decided that it wasn't the right thing to do. And it gave me a chance to actually take care of my shoulder on the side and give it a little bit of rest. And they recovered pretty well? Yeah, you know, overall they're still here. They recovered pretty well. If you see them now, you wouldn't think much of it, which is great. Obviously, the bodies have taken a pretty good beating because of it. But overall, you know, they, they got very lucky and uh, we're still lucky enough to have them around. Now, Tommy, uh, tell us about every surgery you ever had. Where to begin? Yeah, I mean, yeah, unfortunately, my body, I guess, you know, um, you know, when you have injuries as an, as an athlete, shoulder surgery had to be done then end of 2002, actually. Finally, they figured it so out. that's the first one. That was the first one. But then six and a half months later, because I healed too fast, the scar tissue didn't break up. They had to go in again. So I was out 15 months with two shoulder surgeries before actually then returning to, uh, to the tour in February 2004. Um, at some point then after that, uh, I probably had to have another shoulder surgery. I believe that was in 2008. And in 2010, I had to undergo hip surgery at a labrum tear. Then I did my elbow as well, where I had a slight, uh, slight tear in my elbow. 
Um, then I had to do a toe surgery, which is a really strange uh, injury, but uh, a tore ligament in my toe joint, which is not even possible in my mind, but it was. So you did six surgeries over the course of your career? Yeah, maybe seven. I'm, maybe I lose track sometimes. How would you describe your pro career? Number one, having made it to, to play on the ATP World Tour, you know, becoming a professional tennis player. That literally, since I was seven years old and I watched Boris Becker win Wimbledon, you know, that was my dream. That was my goal. And uh, I did pretty much everything that I could to, to make that uh, dream a reality. And I, I thank all the people behind the scenes that, uh, that made that possible for me. And, you know, having a, a 19, 20 year career on the tour um, was exceptional. You know, I've obviously a lot of highs, a lot of lows, you know, a lot of things I look back, I could have done differently. But, uh, you know, overall, to be able to, to, to play at a high level, to compete against some of the greatest players of all time, to have won some tournaments, to have, you know... You won 15, with, don't say so. Yeah, some, you won you know, a lot, some, man. That's okay, yeah. Um, but, you know, to deal also with adversity and, and come back from some of the injuries where, you know, usually people haven't come back from or haven't done well from, uh, you know, I'm very proud of that. And uh, I feel like that I have a good uh, knowledge about the game and um, I'm very happy to still be a part of the team now in a different role, but it's a lot of fun. You had, great. A great, you had a great life in tennis. Thank you. Um, what about your, uh, who taught you your backhand? I mean, it's just such a, it's just an iconic, beautiful, one-handed backhand, yeah, I mean. Yeah, no, my, my dad did, you know, my dad really did. He always liked watching Ivan Lendl play. So he always said to me, you know, you, you gotta stand sideways, that's the style for you. And, um, you know, obviously a lot of my idols growing up with Lendl and, and Becker and, and Edberg, you know, they all had one-handed backhand, so it was sort of natural for me. Um, you know, I always enjoyed seeing the two-hander, and I practice a lot now, you know, since I'm not playing anymore, I like to kind of play around with it when I'm playing just for fun. And uh, I think maybe actually down the road, the future of tennis might be, you know, a two-handed return backhand shot. And then, you know, when you're in the rally, you actually switch over to a one-handed backhand because usually one-handed backhand players have a better slice. But for the return, you know, the 200, 200 backhand return is, uh, is, is, is better, is easier to, to handle the pace coming from the servers. But um, for the longest time, looking back, I remember having a one-handed backhand. I mean, I think when I started off playing at age three, three and a half, four, my dad was all about one-handed backhands, which looking back now, it's almost like no wonder my shoulder is, 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 is so messed up because, you know, it's like when you're young, you're supposed to have like, you know, hit with two hands and, you know, looking at all the videos when I was like five and six and seven, I mean, I had the one-hander going all the time. So my shoulder has has gone through through a lot of beating. You just grinded it into dust. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, let me just ask you this. Um, do you have a, a greatest match? Was there a greatest match? You know, not really. I mean, obviously, you always look back at uh, some of the biggest highlights you've had in your career. You know, for me, um, you know, playing the first time on, on court in Wimbledon against Andre Agassi is one of the great matches. You know, reaching a silver medal in, uh, in Australia, in Sydney for, for the Olympics was sort of like a, an amazing time. Uh, you know, winning your first title against Jim Currier back in 99 in Memphis, that was such a great moment. You know, beating Roger in my last match on grass on tour, you know, was a great one. Or even beating him in Halle to, to win the title there in Germany and on Father's Day with my father there, my father-in-law there, that was a great one. And there's obviously a lot of ones that hurt, you know, that, uh, that you were defeated by when you could have won. Um, which I won't talk about because I'm, you know, we're going to stay positive, right? <laughs> I think all tennis players that stop at one point, you know, we, we are competitive. You know, that's just in our spirit, in our DNA. And uh, when you watch these guys now do it on court, you know, you always feel like, you know what, I can still hang maybe for one set. You know, give me one more set against these guys. You know, I can maybe, you know, play and produce some good tennis, but, you know, you can't do it, you know, back to back to back. And uh, Tennis you know, ain't one set. Unfortunately, no. I'm going to start a tour where you just play one set. <laughs> <laughs> 
moving on, we're gonna move into what I call the 10 ball scramble. I've got a bunch of names and I'm just gonna say the name. We're not gonna do a deep dive. You just tell me what you think. Let's try this. Okay. okay. Boris Becker. Idol growing up, what a competitor, you know. I mean, 17 year old winning Wimbledon, I mean, that's all you have to say. Mikhail Stich. My dad actually helped him uh, quite a bit uh, when I was growing up, so I got to play with Michael when I was uh, young. Um, also, um, you know, German legend. Nick Boletari. Most respect for him, uh, you know, thank him a lot for, for all of my success, um, you know, on and off the court. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oof, icon, you know, Austrian's legend. You know, but what's the story that he, you, you and your father know each yeah, other? Yeah, they went to the same school, and uh, so my dad's known him for a long time. Um, you know, everybody knows the story that obviously he's from Graz, Austria, and you know he told everybody in the gym when he was you know 14, 15 years old that he was going to be the next big Hollywood star, and everybody used to just kind of shake their head and go, "Who is this kid, Arnold?" You know, and then he became literally the American dream, right? I mean, governor of California. I mean, what he's achieved. But I have it wrong though. He wasn't like making you breakfast, and you wouldn't, you never like have like a very. No, I've been to his house before. He actually came uh, when the tournament used to still be here at UCLA. He came watch my matches. I, I remember actually inviting him to my match, and he did show up. I remember seeing him on the sideline and it was like, wow, Terminator's here. I mean, it's, he came into my press conference afterwards and we've stayed in touch. I'm good friends with, uh, with his nephew, Patrick Knapp as well, who is, you know, a big time uh, Hollywood agent here and then lawyer and uh, a great guy. Just, 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 I mean, what can you say about Arnold? Arnold is the man. Tomas Muster. What a fighter, you know, always enjoyed watching him play, especially on clay, you know, he gave it his all. Cool uh, guy, I thought. Yeah, you know, he's, uh, you know, he's, uh, you know, we call him in Germany the Alpen Boris, um, which means you know the guy that's basically in the in the mountains, the the, the mountain Boris. Um, but yeah, what a career! You know, also when he had that injury and in Kibis came with his knee that shattered his knee pretty much, and then coming back and winning uh, the tournament in Kibis came many years after. I played a couple times against him, which was a pleasure. But uh, yeah, just an, a complete beast. I mean, I always kind of go to the fact that I know certain ways Thomas Muster trained, and there are not many people out there even now training the way Thomas Muster trained, because you just can't do it physically. But he is also just a, a complete beast. Complete beast. Complete. Uh, Tony Godsick. Very, very close friend of mine. Um, he was your agent. He was my agent, yeah. Now he's just uh, one of my close uh, family friends, a friend for life. What is his significance to the sport um, today? And this is Tony Godsick is Roger Federer's agent most significantly, but uh, he came up at IMG, he was he was like a junior agent to Yvonne Lendl, you know, back when. Well, he had Monica Sellish and Lindsay Davenport, Mary Jo Fernandez, me at a very young age, she's been managing me since the age of 15, you know, and, uh, you know, so me and Tony go way back and, uh, you know, I always have a special place for him in my heart and I still do, and we still very close friends and see each other a lot. You know, he started teammate with Roger Federer, He's a, he's a he's a big big time uh, businessman, you know, very smart, very very knowledgeable about the game of tennis, very passionate about it, and he he plays a big role in the world of tennis, and um, you know he is uh, he's just great. He's you know one of those guys that uh, you know you're very lucky to know. Jill Smaller, also you know, I've been around for such a long time. Um, you know what she's done with Serena and and many other people that she she represents is. Uh, is truly spectacular and uh, also very, very powerful in the world of tennis and, and others, other things, but uh, also a great character. Uh, Larry Ellison. One of my idols, you know, also his story is, uh, is truly phenomenal. I, 
love listening to him speak all the time. Um, his story is uh, legendary, uh, what he's achieved, what he's done. Um, you know, we've talked about it a little bit earlier, but uh, the things he does for the sport of tennis are absolutely incredible. Um, to, to know him the way I do, uh, I'm very grateful for, and uh, I hope to have many, many more great moments with him. Finally, I want to just touch it again, um, Serena Williams. <sighs> Goat. I mean, what an athlete, what, a, what an inspiration. You know, what she's gone through last year after giving birth to her beautiful, cute little daughter, Olympia, it's... It's amazing. You know, I haven't finished watching the documentary yet on HBO with her and, and, and her husband, Alex, but what a couple uh, really, um, you know, what she does for the sport of tennis, what she does in sports in general. And I couldn't believe it when she's talking about it all the time, but she's basically saying she's just starting again. So I don't know what that means. Does that mean she's going to be at least around in the two, three years? Is she planning on playing over the age of 40? You know, is she going to be maybe like a Tom Brady in the tennis scene? I would love it. I think a lot of tennis fans would love it. I can't wait to see her actually lift up one more Grand Slam trophy. She now was close in Wimbledon. She was close at the US Open. Got to give credit where credit's due against these opponents that she lost to. They were just better that day. Um, but, you know, can't wait for, for Australian Open next year, actually. This is what we call King of the Court. And okay. it's basically, if you were the king, how would you do it? Um, I generally speaking, think that talking about the rules are, are boring, but, you know, I, the fact that you're a tournament director, a former player, a coach, you know, I think that there's no one better to kind of get a, a nuanced, interesting take on, on what, some, what do you think about some of these new rules? So I'm just going to go through them. Sure. We don't need to go too deep. No, nope. um, I won't. <laughs> the shot clock. I like it. I think it's good. I think it's good for the players to see, you know, after a long rally. If you can't catch your breath, you know, I've been there myself a, long, a lot of times where, you know, when you play a rally against Rafa Nadal or Roger or whoever it might be and it's going over 16, 18, 20 shots and I can't catch my breath because I'm so tired and I'm going to the towel and I don't know exactly, am I at 18 seconds, 22 seconds, now I have sort of a clock to look at and so do, so do the fans. It's, it's nice to see, by the way, if you're not ready, if, you don't, if you're not in the service motion by the time the clock shows zero, Hey, I have to give you a little, you know, a little warning. So that that's part of the game. It's part of being fit. So I think in that sense, I like it. I've been I've been always I've been always for it. Encore coaching. Let's bring it on. I think it's time. You know, WTA most of the tournaments are doing it already anyway, where the coach can go on the court after each set or in between the sets whenever the player wants it. I think it's fine. Look, most of the sports have the coaching. Bring it in on tennis. The player still has to, in the end, figure out a way and do it. And, uh, you know, you can look at the aspect of like one on one and everything is so hard as a tennis player to begin with anyway. So give him a little bit of uh, help every once in a while just to have somebody, you know, keeping him calm, keeping the mindset going in the right direction. It kind of speaks also for maybe even better high quality tennis, if that's even possible. Why not ban it and, and make it like the only sport that really there is none but then what do you want to do where do you want to have the coaches sit do you they, they can't do any you know face movements no hand signals like i mean it's just saying then the umpire is going to be in the same position of doing certain things that they have done in the past where then all of a sudden some get code violation some don't so you got to find the consistency so if all of a sudden that is out of the game the umpire doesn't have to worry about it i mean you have to be quiet anyway once the point starts so it's not like you're going to do certain things now if you want to if you want to talk about no on-court coaching where the coach goes onto the onto the tennis court and sits next to the player and talks to them, that, that it maybe is not necessary. But if I'm sitting in the box or 10 rows up and I yell in there sometimes something, 
So what? I can also I can also sit, have you sit next to me three seats and I tell you what you, I want you to shout out and tell my player, by the way, you know, my, my, my buddy's going to shout out a few things. So that's then not coaching because the umpire doesn't know that you're part of the team. Right. So I find that to be, um, an, you know, uh, something that we should just get rid of and just say, look, if somebody says something out of the player box, just let it go. Best of five set tennis. You know, in the slams, I think you should keep it. Um, for the men's, I mean, we see so many epic matches, best of five. It, it, it asks again, I think that's what makes tennis so interesting and unique, where the physicality of it really plays a role. I think John Millman beating Roger at the US Open helped that it was best of five. I think if it was only best of three, that might have not happened. You know, I think it was one of those rare moments where Roger was really beat up with the humidity and he didn't look himself. Um, but please do me one favor and everybody get a fifth set tiebreak going. Thank you to the US Open. I've played many fifth set tiebreaks at the US Open. I love it. I mean, if you're going to be out there four hours and you both hold six times your service game in the fifth set after you both won two sets, let's play a tiebreak and go home and maybe you have a chance to actually then recover the next day and come back to still go further instead of doing this, you know, 28, 26 and 40, 38. I mean, sorry, who wants to see that? I don't want to see that, but uh, I feel like that that tradition can be changed where you have a fifth set tiebreak at six all. Officiating, code violations, point penalties, game penalties, Mohamed Layani. Where, where, do, where do you land on what should happen with chair umpires and consistency? I think the chair umpire should do his job, you know, and that is to call the lines, you know, overrule when he clearly sees a ball in or out, um, if he can. Um, again, I think uh, he doesn't have to worry about the future with coaching or in the, coming from the box. I think that should be left out. And, you know, if a player doesn't try or doesn't do something or doesn't behave a certain way or uses bad language when it's on a court where there's a lot of people and it's, you know, televised, he needs to do his job. And when he hears something that maybe isn't right, he needs to give him a warning. He needs to give him a point penalty. Follow the rules. Do you think the chair umpire overstepped his boundaries in the women's final? From what I can remember, I think maybe at the very end, um, having the game penalty was a bit harsh, in my opinion, for sure. What I think the umpire should have done if he felt like it was getting to a point where it was too much of yapping from Serena, he should have looked at her and said, Serena, I need you to stop telling me that I'm a thief. I need you to stop telling me what you think because if you keep going, I won't have any other way of doing this, but I'm going to have to give you another warning and that's going to lead into a game penalty because then if she knows that, I think she probably would have stopped because of the, 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 the situation of where the match was. Now, she probably didn't know that or she didn't think about that because she was still so fired up. So I think the umpire could have done something like that and say, look, Serena, you're getting to a point now where you need to cool off. Otherwise, I'm going to have to give you another warning and that's going to lead into a game penalty. Now, if she continues after that, then he's got all the right to do that. But I think he should have given her at least a little warning on that part. Tommy Haas, uh, the pleasure was ours. Um... You're playing uh, the Sherwood Country Club Champions Tour event, is that right? Yes, uh, October 21st, that's correct. And by the way, that's an unbelievable event. You go into this beautiful property at the Sherwood Country Club, it's as nice as it gets. No, absolutely, it's beautiful there. I actually was a spectator there maybe two or three years ago, so I'm really excited now to be a part of it and, uh, and to play there. Well, obviously, a lot of friends and family coming in from LA to, to watch me play. Um, should be fun. Um, weather usually is always good. It's a great place, like you said. And you guys play hard, and it is an intimate, cool event. I really love that event. So do I. Tommy, uh, thank you very much. Uh, we'll see you there, and you are released. Sounds good. That was fun. Thanks. 
I want to say thank you to Tommy Haas. If you want to see Tommy play at the Sherwood Country Club, the event is October 21st. We will be there. Big thank you to Zach Allen and everyone at Inside Out Sports and Entertainment. Our producer is Scott Tuff. Our music is by Brian Senti. The masterful Matt Degnan did our sound mix. And I want to thank everyone for listening. We will be back next time with my most successful friend that did not go to high school, former world number 30, Chuck Adams. Most people think I was a high school dropout like all the other tennis players at that time, like Sampras, Chang, Agassi. But I actually didn't finish junior high. Yeah, more semantics. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review us. And tell your friends. Thank you for listening. And if you have any comments or questions, shoot us an email at info at underreviewtennis.com. Until next time, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released. <laughs>